Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Master Brophy. I guess I need to say I'm Goody Rebecca. That just sounds very strange. It's it's short for good wife, which is what, you know, people of the era used to refer, a term of respect for women and Master Brophy, of course. I, I was going to say, it's probably the first time in your life you've been called Goody Rebecca. Oh, thank you so much. Well, yeah, you're right. You're not wrong about that. So this is our Thanksgiving episode of Mormonish, isn't it, Landon? It is. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. We have our pilgrim attire on and we also have what no thanksgiving would be complete without and that is what pumpkin pie we have our pumpkin pie <laughs> that's right and we thought <laughs> we're going to cover a lot of information today and instead of making this into a kind of a drinking game and taking shots we're going to make it into a whipped cream game aren't we every whipped time cream, we hear whipped something cream new, shots that's, that's right, right. every time take... we hear something new in this podcast that you haven't learned before, we want you to grab your pie, add your whipped cream. I, we may gain 10 pounds or, during this or podcast. You can... <laughs> My, kids in the mouth. Yep. My kids totally do that. You know, <laughs> no holds bar. That's it. Exactly. And it's gross. Cause then you go to the fridge. You're like, did they do that? Did they not? Do I want to use this? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we thought we would cover a, what I feel is a really interesting topic, especially in light of all the recent OUR Tim Ballard patriotic kind of rhetoric that's out there, right? About America being set aside, the pilgrims coming, the restoration, how it's all tied in together. Have you been hearing a lot of talk about that recently? I have. I've heard a lot about that. And of course, the Book of Mormon tells us the story of the pilgrims, uh, you know, from a thousand years before, uh, yeah. supposedly. Uh, so uh, this is a great episode, I think, uh, to really explain the difference. We all hear pilgrims, Puritans. What's the difference? How does it play into the Restoration? How does it play into Mormonism? We're going to talk about that. Pilgrims versus Puritans. That's right. Why the difference matters to Mormons. And, and I learned a lot on this, too. I thought I knew some, but no, this definitely opened my eyes to a lot of things. So well, then you should um, be doing a lot of whipped cream shots then. I will see. We'll see. That's right. I feel like I need to take a bite here. Yeah, this looks good. <laughs> Love pumpkin pie. <laughs> should we just like turn the camera off and have some pie for a minute? We and might then... <laughs> need to do that. <laughs> I feel like I might need to. So, all right, let's dive in. Um, we're going to be using several different articles as reference um, as we try to make this clear. The main one is what's the difference between Puritans and Pilgrims. Um, so we're just going to kind of start right in. And as we said, we're going to discuss this sort of through the lens of Mormonism, because um, the story of the Pilgrims factors very heavily into all the rhetoric, rhetoric around the Restoration, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, as Mormons, we all learned that this was an important step in yes. the Restoration was the settlers coming over and displacing the Native Americans. Yeah, well, over the land. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was meant to be so that Mormonists could Mormonism could flourish. I think that's what we've always heard. We've always learned that narrative. So um, I'll start with the first slide. So uh, many Americans and Mormons get the Pilgrims and the Puritans mixed up. Common thinking is they were both groups of English religious reformers. They both landed in modern day Massachusetts and they were both stuffy sourpusses who wore black hats like Landon's right there, square collars and buckled shoes, right? Well, maybe not the buckles. To understand the biggest difference between the Pilgrims and the Puritans, one has to go back to the Protestant Reformation, which swept across Europe after Martin Luther, supposedly, that's in quotes, 
nailed his 95 theses to the church door in 1517. And that actually supposedly happened on Halloween. Of course, there's some question as to whether- I did not know he, that. Oh, uh-oh. Oh my, he's just going straight <laughs> for, I did not know that. There you go. He, for our listeners, Landon is taking pure uh, whipped cream shots. He's not even putting on his pie right now. should be all shaky by the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> like really hyper by the final slide. That's it. So, uh, so yeah, this definitely uh, was the beginning of a revolution. Um, common thinking now is that he didn't necessarily nail it to a door. He might've just, you know, mailed it, made people aware, but these are changes, things that he saw needed to occur in the Catholic church at the time, um, having to do with indulgences and practices and just felt they'd moved away from what Christianity was really supposed to be. So that's 1517. Let's go to our next slide. All right, go ahead, Lennon. You can read that one. Okay. Thanks to the printing press, non-clergy had access to the Bible in their native languages for the first time. They began to question why the Roman Catholic worship services were so different than those of the primitive Christian church. This kind of goes back to some of the uh, episodes we had uh, mm-hmm. with um, with John, yeah, uh, where he talked about how the the method or the the well becoming the the method, and here the printing press became the means for the communication, which changes the religion. Yeah. Uh, so that all goes right back to uh, to, to John Lundwall's uh, episode, if you haven't yeah. seen that. The Reformation was slower to arrive to the British Isles, but England had its own split from the Roman Catholic Church in 1534, as we all remember when King Henry VIII wanted a divorce and the Pope wouldn't grant it. The newly created Church of England was similar to Catholicism in every way, except instead of the Pope carrying divine authority, it was the British crown. Yeah. And it was all just because there was no mechanism at the time in the Catholic Church to get a divorce. And of course, Henry was married to Catherine of Aragon. And although they had six, you know, six children, none of them survived except for one. And he really needed his male heir. So, you know, have to get out of that relationship, have to marry Anne Boleyn. Do you remember the rhyme? How you remember the it's it's uh, let's see, it's divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. That's how you remember his six wives and the fate of all of them. Yeah. So, but he definitely, when you're the king, you can do this. Won't grant me a divorce? Fine. I'm starting my own church. (laughs) And then we started thinking, that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Let's go to our next slide. We just thought we'd interject this because I think that's very interesting. So, you know, Henry VIII wanted to be with Anne Boleyn. And so he simply created his own church. We saw some parallels, didn't we, Landon? And perhaps Joseph Smith, (laughs) Joseph Smith, who wanted to be with, this is, this is an AI of Fanny Alger, um, wanted to be with her. And although the religion was new and growing, definitely added some elements to the religion that have lasting effects today and have become one of the major tenants um, kind of under the surface, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's amazing how many religions uh, formed when uh, men wanted women and and needed to change Mm -hmm. the rules. (laughs) That is such a good point. And then we started deconstructing it even further. We thought, well, what about Christianity as a whole? Because as we know, Jesus was a follower of John the Baptist. Um, He was just one of his followers. Then John the Baptist is arrested, thrown in jail. You've got Salome, you've got King Herod. King Herod will do anything that Salome says. And what does she ask? For his head on a for platter. his head yeah. on a platter. Well, we are talking about Thanksgiving. Is that a whipped cream? Yeah. No, I don't. Think, let's not go there. That's an image we don't want to have. Image. Exactly. But the idea is King Herod did what 
his woman wanted beheaded John. And that left a power vacuum that Jesus stepped up into. I keep thinking that perhaps if John the Baptist would never have been killed, there might not really have been a Jesus. I mean, that's a very simplistic way to look at it, but kind of interesting, huh? Yeah. The woman has the power behind the throne. That's it. Exactly. So anyway, little side note there we thought was interesting. There was a lot to this. Let's go to our next slide. Um, so who were the pilgrims? Uh, every British citizen at this point then was expected to attend the Church of England. And those who didn't were punished by the state. One group of farmers in northern England, known disparagingly as the separatists, began to worship in secret, knowing full well that it was treasonous. Once they decided that the only way they could be true to their conscience was to leave the established church and secretly worship, they were hunted and persecuted, and many of them were forced to... Um, forced the loss of their homes yeah. and, or sorry, Please. faced, I know I can't, <laughs> the print's a little weird. Uh, they faced the loss of their homes and the loss of their livelihood, um, says Donna Curtin, executive director of the Pilgrim Hall Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts. When it became impossible for them to continue in this way, they began to seek another place to live. So separatists, they did not want to worship in the way that the uh, Church of England was dictating. And so they simply removed themselves to another place at great personal expense, right? Lost quite a bit. Yeah, they, lo they lost everything uh, to flee and to uh, to practice their religious belief or what they believed the reforms needed to be in the religion. So, and, yeah. and this that we're reading is from uh, an article by David mm -hmm. Roos that's called, What's the Difference Between Puritans and Pilgrims? And so this Correct. is really quite fascinating uh, to know that the uh, you know they started as separatists uh, from the Church of England and yep. uh, had to remove themselves in order to survive. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, go ahead. So the separatists, they first fled to the Netherlands, which was a wealthy maritime superpower that was far more religiously diverse and tolerant. But while life in Holland was peaceful, it wasn't English, and the separatists feared that their children were losing their native culture. They decided that the only way to live as true English Christians was to separate even further and establish their own colony in the New World. Not all of the separatists could make the cross-Atlantic journey, including their spiritual leader, Reverend John Robinson. Writing years later in Of Plymouth Plantation, William Bradford recounted the tearful farewell at the docks in uh, Deltshaven, where a ship would take the separatists to meet the Mayflower in London. So these are uh, separatists. Uh, they, they fled to uh, Denmark to have a colony. They didn't feel they were English enough. Uh, they wanted, didn't want their kids to lose the faith. So they loaded up their stuff and headed to the Mayflower. And the rest is history as they headed to the New World uh, to establish uh, a colony. Of course, at this time, there's really not anybody in the New World uh, of European descent. The, the uh, Spanish are down in the southern uh the Mexico and, and that area, but uh, the uh, there's no one in the New World. Jamestown had been attempted uh, at, at this time, but uh, nobody nobody survived. Nobody survived. Yeah, I looked into that because I think that's also a confusing thing. People think, oh, were Jamestown the pilgrims? No, they went much earlier um, in 1607. And you're not going to know this, Landon. You're going to want to get your whipped cream ready. Um, of course, they tried to settle Fort James, and it was extremely difficult. In 1609 to 10, there was a period called the Starving Time, where they literally had nothing to eat. And unfortunately, uh, recent <laughs> archaeological discoveries have shown that they 
probably had turned to cannibalism at that time in their I know you don't even want to have any I don't think I don't think no. proper for that. yeah <laughs> they, they've been able to excavate and, and uh see that they probably were so desperate and again just disappeared that that those were not the pilgrims those came uh if the pilgrims came in 20 those came 10 years earlier so see why they didn't make uh that the first uh, Thanksgiving. That would have been no. a whole different Thanksgiving. It's a little yes. uh, darker side to things. But again, side, yep. there was there was no infrastructure. There was nothing in the new world. They were absolutely on their own having to carve out a life. So yeah, so that was uh, the Jamestown settlement. That was 1607. Um, and now we're moving on to the separatists. Uh, so they left that goodly and pleasant city, which had been their resting place near 12 years. And again, this is Bradford writing um, in the, the book that we just talked about. Uh, but they knew they were pilgrims and not and looked not much on those things, but lift up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. Um, the professor we're talking about, Kirtland, points out that Bradford didn't name his community pilgrims and wouldn't have even heard the term in his lifetime. The first usage of a capital P pilgrim appeared around 1800 when a group of citizens in Plymouth proposed the creation of a pilgrim society to organize the annual celebration of the founding of Plymouth Colony in 1620. Before 1800, the separatists who landed at Plymouth Rock were known as the first comers or the forefathers. So, Pilgrims is a relatively Did not know that. modern construct. That's right. <laughs> yeah, which I, still seems ancient. I thought to us, John Wayne had coined that phrase. <laughs> I'm sure he put it in the popular lexicon. That's true. So, but before that, they were just known as the first comers or the forefathers. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So the pilgrims were led by uh, Bradford. They arrived in New England in December. Roughly half of the 102 passengers on the Mayflower died that first winter from starvation, exposure, and disease. Uh, with the help of the native Wampanoag people, the pilgrims learned to fish and farm their new lands, resulting in the famous Feast of Thanksgiving attended by natives and new arrivals in 1621. Uh, I, I have had the privilege of going to Plymouth and seeing the uh, village there uh, that they kind of show the Wampanoag village. Uh, really interesting. In fact, our family did something kind of fun. We decided that uh, instead of doing a traditional Thanksgiving dinner, we would do a uh, what would be uh, an what would be the actual Thanksgiving dinner using food that would have been available to the uh, pilgrims. So we had bluefish, uh, uh, some uh, game hens. Uh, we we kind of researched what the foods would have been that they would have had access to, and then we made all of the dishes uh, that would have been because we picked up a Wampanoag. Uh, cookbook when we were in Plymouth. <laughs> and so we were able to make some of the recipes and have a, a a real traditional first Thanksgiving. That's amazing. What did your kids think of that? Um, it was interesting. Everyone enjoyed it. it it's certainly not uh, as good as turkey and the, the modern food. That we yeah. Have. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was interesting to try, you know, eating fish uh, for Thanksgiving, because that would have been one of the things they would have right. had on the menu. So yeah. No, that's great. And of course, the first Thanksgiving, as we see there, the date was 1621. Yep. And they had just landed the year prior and would not have survived were it not for the help that they received. Yeah. And it's interesting that half of the 102 had already died by the time of, yeah. of that. So there, there's only, you know, around 50 of mm -hmm. them left at that point. 
Yep, that's right. I'm going to have you read this slide too, Landon, because okay. that font, while it looks really cool, <laughs> it's not that easy for me to read. Go uh, ahead. I understand. So that's the pilgrims. We, we've just yep. described the pilgrims. So who are the Puritans and how are they different? Uh, so who then were the Puritans? Well, the separatists believed that the only way to live according to biblical precepts was to leave the Church of England entirely. The Puritans thought that they could reform the church from within sometimes called non-separating Puritans. This less radical group shared a lot in common with the separatists, particularly a form of worship and self-organization called the Congregational Way. So this is really interesting. I hadn't put this together, but basically the pilgrims are post-Mormons. They say, I can't make this church work for me. I'm out of here. Get out. We're <laughs> out of here. We're leaving it behind. And you leave. they left all their friends. They had to leave their family. They had yeah. to leave their congregations. Yeah. The Puritans, on the other hand, were nuanced Mormons. They said, yeah, there's a lot of problems with the church, but we can fix it from inside, and we're going to stay with the church. We're going to uh, reform the church from the inside out. So uh, as a result, the Puritans ended up being much more affluent yeah. uh, because they had money. They, they didn't have to lose all their possessions to leave and all their friendships and all their business relationships. So right. the Puritans ended up being much more affluent, uh, much more dedicated to the church, uh, much more uh, gospel oriented, I guess. They right. they they wandered from the covenant path. They didn't uh, leave it uh, like the <laughs> like the pilgrims had done. That's so, right. The pilgrims were the radical hippies that just set out on their own. Maybe that's the way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're the hippie yeah. of the day. Yep. yep. They, they left everything. And we're doing it different. And, we're and marching to, to a, do a different. A, a different uh, lifestyle. So yeah. in a congregational church, there is no prayer book, no formal creeds or belief statements, and the head of the church isn't a pope or a king, but Jesus Christ is revealed in the scriptures. Sabbath worship doesn't include sermons and preachings, but ex extemporaneous testifying by the Holy Spirit. Boy, that sounds familiar. It, uh, it does sound Sunday. familiar. Sounds like every Sunday was fast Sunday. <laughs> um as an, as an organizing principle, congregational churches are bound together by a covenant and make decisions democratically, including the selection of religious leaders. So again, they seem like they're on a covenant path. They, yeah. they combine by a covenant. So all stuff I didn't know, so I get another shot of the whipped cream. Here he goes. That's right. I've not done that yet. However, I am eating my pie. So <laughs> there we go. All right. Let's continue talking about the Puritans. Um, the biggest difference between the separatists, and again, those were the ones that would eventually be known, labeled as pilgrims, the separatists and the Puritans, is that the Puritans believed that they could live out the congregational way within their local churches without abandoning the larger Church of England. And that's exactly what Landon was just making that parallel, you know, with Mormons that choose perhaps to remain in, trying to make a difference, trying to make a positive change, instead of just getting out of Dodge, right? <laughs> the Puritan said, it's completely acceptable that this ecclesiastical structure is above us, but we're going to operate as a congregation in this biblical way, says Vicki Orman, Associate Director of Group Participation and Learning at the Historic Plymouth Plantation. The separatists said, that's baloney. Pilgrims said, not going to do that. We have to completely separate ourselves and have this congregational community separate from the state church. So that's starting to make sense now. Isn't that a little more clear, the difference? 
Oh yeah, ab absolutely. As I, as I learned this, I was going, wow, this is really, really interesting. Cause mm -hmm. when you put it in modern day, you really start to understand it as someone who has left their church and says, I can't make this work. Mm -hmm. I understand where the pilgrims are coming from. Yeah. And I understand what they had to give up uh, in order to uh, to do this. And it's ama amazing. They're kind of alone on Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> They're not with their Church of England <laughs> counterparts and Puritan no. family. They're on their own with the uh, with the Native Americans. They yep. had to go with the Gentiles, uh, as you would. That's right. They uh, had the first Friendsgiving, right? Which is a lot of people do when their family has cast them out. They join together with friends and they call it Friendsgiving. So exactly. they had the first Friendsgiving. Interesting. All right. Let's look at our next slide. Okay. Go ahead, Landon. This theological split between separatists and non-separating Puritans had lasting consequences. Separatists end up on the outside of society, says Omen. Even if they're educated, they end up with low-paying jobs. They leave for places like the Netherlands, where they're also not financially successful. Meanwhile, the Puritans stay wealthy. So, yeah, yeah that's something we talked about. Uh, we see the same thing in Mormonism. Uh, a lot of people who leave their jobs in Utah uh, or leave the church mm -hmm. <laughs> then have to kind of leave their job because they have yeah. LDS employers who yep. aren't real fond of the fact that they've left their uh, their church and they kind of expect that they want to have LDS employees and they find themselves on the outside looking in and they have a hard time making business contacts yeah. because people say, Oh, you're a post-Mormon. You're an anti-Mormon. Uh, yeah. I don't want you working for me. Yeah. And if it's even, if it's not even that strong, there's an undercurrent of this affinity, you know, like I think of my parents, they make sure that they try to go to LDS dentist, LDS realtor, mm -hmm. LDS mechanic, you know, that's, that's definitely something that they look for somebody that's within the group you know, the affinities. So, so yeah, the separatists were called separatists for a reason. They really left it all and they wanted to do something different and, and follow a different path. All right. So the Puritans seek land in America. I, I didn't understand this. I guess I should do this. <laughs> I thought everybody, I thought there were Puritans and pilgrims on the same ship. You know, I did not understand this, but the pilgrims came and they were in Plymouth in 1620. The Puritans were later. They were actually 10 years later. Um, the Puritans ultimately decided to journey to the New World too, but not for the same reasons as the separatists. The Puritans, who already had some money, saw a favorable investment opportunity by owning land in America. And somewhat paradoxically, the Puritans also believed that by being far away from England, they could create the ideal English church. <laughs> That's interesting. We can do it better, bigger, brighter, over here, although we, we can still do a agree better, with the church. Yeah. Better English church outside of England. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take it out on our own. But that uh, just sounds so much like post-Mormons and, and nuanced Mormons, you know, the right. Mormons are going, oh, we're going to have our own. Uh, and you look at some of the events they have, Faith Matters recently. Right, restore. It's, it's yeah. got money. It's got the all-stars. Mm -hmm. It's like, we can do a better church. We can we make can church happier and still believe and still fall under the, the auspices of the church. Well, yeah. the post-Mormons are going, uh, you know, we have no money. Nobody donates to post-Mormonism. Uh, you know, it's it's tough to do anything. So, Hey, uh, we have pie. You know what? We, we have, have pie. pie. We're okay. We've got pie. <laughs> That's right. So, And I would say this kind of um, outlines any kind of schism. I can think of other religions, too, where doctrinally or just the practices, you know, they, they shift. And some people decide to leave and they start their own organization. So, yeah, I think it's just the way, I think the way things work in organized religion.
eventually people organize themselves right out of it and start something new. So uh, the Puritan leader, John Winthrop, talks about creating a church that will be a light to nations, says Omen. The pilgrims never really expressed this desire. So that's interesting. The pilgrims really just want to remove themselves and practice in their own way. The Puritans definitely want to create something that everyone will be drawn to. Yeah, the pilgrims were much more, like you said, hippie. It's like... Mm -hmm. Practice whatever you want to practice. Yeah. Uh, believe how you want to believe. That's what you establish a relationship with mm -hmm. God. You establish your spirituality. We don't need an organized church to do that right. for us. Whereas the Puritans said, well, we want to have our belief, but we want it under the auspices of a church structure. Right. Yeah, so, it's so. fascinating, that dynamic. Okay. When the Puritans settled the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, so this is 10 years later, yeah. Pilgrims are in Plymouth in 1620, Puritans, Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630. They arrived in 17 ships, uh, mm. as opposed to, I think, the three that accompanied yeah. the Mayflower, carrying more than a thousand passengers. They came with money and resources and divinely ordained arrogance. <laughs> Just 10 years later, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was a Puritan stronghold of 20,000, while humble Plymouth was home to just 2,600 pilgrims. And this is, the pilgrims got there 10 years earlier, and yet they're a tenth of the size. Um, they couldn't establish. Plymouth was fully swallowed up by Massachusetts Bay just a few decades later. Yeah. And I think that's where the confusion is because everybody just thinks, oh, pilgrims, Massachusetts Bay, they don't realize there were two groups you know, and, and one just didn't quite have what it took and were eventually kind of assimilated um, by the, the Puritans. So I can see why there's confusion. Let's see. Uh, because the Pilgrims and the Puritans share a similar backstory, their legacies often get blurred in the minds of later generations of Americans, like I just said, and not always accidentally. Writing in 1820, Daniel Webster of the Webster Dictionary Use the pilgrims as nostalgic symbols of manifest destiny, which were more, which actually was more of a Puritan thing. Um, he wrote, 2,000 miles westward from the rock where their fathers landed may now be found the sons of the pilgrims, cherishing the blessings of wise institutions of liberty and religion. So I think this is where you start seeing it happen, right? Our forefathers ordained to come over a special mission, and we're going to spread it westward until everyone is Christian in the nation. Yep, absolutely. Uh, this was manifest destiny that Europeans were destined to rule the world uh, mm -hmm. was, was definitely well and alive at this point. Uh, so yeah. And well and alive today, and I feel like we're seeing a, a yeah. resurgence of it. In fact, the episode that we just put out last week with the wonderful Professor uh, Matt Harris talked all about white Mormon nationalism, Christian nationalism, um, this entire concept, which which I feel is really moving to the forefront uh, faster than I think a lot of us are even aware. So very interesting. Sarah Crabtree, a historian at San Francisco State University, admits that she gets frustrated by the slippage between the Pilgrims and the Puritans. It contributes to the myth that the first Thanksgiving and religious freedom are part and parcel of America's origin story, writes Crabtree in an email. The Puritans and their city on a hill explicitly rejected religious freedom and never attempted to adopt the Pilgrims' initial fleeing cooperations with American Indian peoples. 
Uh, huh. So interesting, uh, whereas the pilgrims had to rely on the Native Americans mm -hmm. and the indigenous people and formed relationships with them because they were more hippie and more accepting. Uh, they weren't there to take over and to bring Christendom and to spread the religion and be a city on the hill. That was the Puritans. The Puritans mm -hmm. were the ones who were there to convert. And they actually kind of looked down on the indigenous peoples uh, mm -hmm. because they were there for a Christian purpose to spread yep. the word and to take the gospel out. And of course, they were a financial. They were there for property. Yeah. They were there, you know, the the Land. programs were just trying to get away and find mm -hmm. a place where they could be left alone. Whereas uh, this was more of a conquer and gain land and sell and make a financial, uh, which is what we see when we have organized religion. They seem yeah. to need to uh, have gain in money for some reason. Uh, we see it That's all. That's WWJD. That's what Jesus would want. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's recap um, what we've gone over so far. Um, we started with Calvinism. Uh, John Calvin's Reformed theology called for massive changes in church doctrine and worship. And that's all around the same time as Martin Luther, uh, you know, a big change in church doctrine right then. And Calvin, I think, was 1519, right after Martin Luther. I think I think I took a note on that. Yes, 1519. So we have that. What else did we learn? We learned that uh, they were called separatists, uh, and the separatists were Calvinist settlers who sought to separate from the Church of England. So both Puritans and Pilgrims were separatists. Um, well, both were Calvinists, but the separatists were the Pilgrims, the non-separatists were the Puritans. Right. And we'll go over that too. So yeah, that's the next thing that we learn. Um, the Calvinist, the Puritans were the Calvinist settlers who sought to reform or purify. That's where Puritan comes from, purify the Church of England. And I should point out that um, some of these, um, some of these slides are from a website, TomRitchie.net. He's an excellent historian who talks all about uh, the founding fathers and pilgrims and American history. So you can go check that out too. We're getting a lot of our resources from there. So Puritans want to purify the church. Pilgrims want to separate from the church. And here we go. The pilgrims are separatist settlers who arrived in Plymouth on the Mayflower in 1620. So it's a very specific niche, right? The pilgrims. <laughs> yep. They're just right. the ones who arrived. The others were yep. called non-separatists. Yep. The pilgrims, although they were called the forefathers and founding fathers, they weren't called pilgrims till yep. later. But when we refer to pilgrims, we're talking specifically the group that arrived on the Mayflower in 1620. Yeah. I feel like everybody who's watching this podcast since tomorrow is Thanksgiving are just going to be able to wow their friends and family at the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? If somebody gets up and says, oh, the pilgrims, you can say, oh, no, no, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they should go dressed in period outfit like us. I with, think uh, so, too. Uh, yeah, Puritan uh, porn shoulders. Uh, <laughs> I do have, you know, I'm pretty sure some of those pilgrims had porn shoulders. I'm sure they must have. So. Oh, I, I I can't believe they wouldn't have. Uh, the Puritans now, they would have not allowed that, as we all know from the... That's right. But the Pilgrims would have. Yes. The Pilgrims would have been okay. All right. Let's keep going. This is so interesting. So now we're going to talk specifically about the Mayflower, which, of course, as we just learned, those are the separatists, Calvinists, who came over on the Mayflower. So who sailed on the Mayflower? There were 102 passengers on the Mayflower, including 37 members of that separatist Leiden congregation who would go on to be known as a pilgrim, as the pilgrims. So those that left England, 
moved to Denmark, you know, lived there for a while, then concerned about assimilation into the culture, decided to go on the Mayflower. And there were 37 of them, which is, you know, a minority here on the ship. Um, the non, let's see. Yes. Okay. They would go on to be known as the pilgrims together with the non-separatist passengers. The non-separatist passengers were referred to as strangers <laughs> or people who did not share their faith. Um, by the separatists. There were 30 crew members. So I, there's over 130. Yeah, go ahead. There's I, only I did not know that there were not pilgrims on the Mayflower. I thought everyone on the, the Mayflower was a pilgrim. The majority were not. I was going to do the math here. There's 130-ish people on the Mayflower. 37 of them are the separatist pilgrims, and they call everyone else strangers. I love that because it reminds me of how the church calls everyone else in the whole freaking world non-members. Or right? Gentiles. <laughs> or Gentiles, yeah. The, 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 the pilgrims, the separatists here were actually a minority on the Mayflower, but they you know, they were referring to everybody else as, hello, stranger, right? But that, that's <laughs> interesting because they all went to Plymouth. They all made yeah. their farms. They all lived together. Yeah. And so the, the pilgrims, when we talk about that they were there, you know, oh, they were escaping religious persecution or whatever, half the people there were not escaping religious exactly. persecution. They were there yeah. because they were just looking for a new life. They yeah. were Gentiles. They were non-believers. They wanted to just be left alone. And and everyone got along. Yeah. The, the pilgrims are a great example of how yeah. you can do it. <laughs> how you can all live together. Um, of the passengers, there were 74 men and 28 women. 18 were listed as servants. That would be like an indentured servant, um, meaning that you work for a family in order for it to have a better opportunity than eventually you won't be a servant anymore. So 18 of those were indentured servants, 13 of which were attached to separatist families. So the pilgrims did have indentured servants. That's interesting. Um, there are thought to have been between 31 children on the Mayflower with one child being born during the voyage, aptly named Oceanus. Yeah, I think that's great. And the crew was led by Captain Christopher Jones. So that's all new information, I think, for a lot of people. Maybe we learned it back in fifth grade, right, when you studied the pilgrims. But uh, this is new, and it gives you a whole different sense of the dynamic that would have been on the Mayflower and the dynamic once they landed and tried to create um, a colony. Yeah, and and when you think about that, 31 children, that's, that's like a third of the people were just mm -hmm. kids. So, mm -hmm. you know, you only had uh, two thirds of the adults. Yeah. And, and uh, so that that's quite interesting. Yeah, and I did read that children were counted as anyone under 18. So some of those children could have been, you know, almost adults. So um, a lot is made of uh, Mayflower and Pilgrim heritage, right, Landon? Don't you hear people saying, my ancestors were on the Mayflower? And we'll find out later that, that a huge number of people can make this claim. But in my family growing up, I was always taught about my ancestor, one of the more famous pilgrims, John Alden. And he was a cooper, a barrel maker who would, would have been one of the crew. And he had the option on the Mayflower to just drop everybody off and return to England or to stay. But he decided to stay. And the reason that he's so well known 
is that he was part of a pilgrim love triangle. Did you know that there was such thing as a pilgrim uh, love triangle? Well, with 73 men and 20-something <laughs> women, uh, you got to think there is going to be a okay. love triangle. You're doing the point. math. Yeah, there were very <laughs> few eligible women in the Plymouth colony. Anyway, this story was made famous by um, um, Henry W. Longfellow in a narrative poem called The Courtship of Miles Standish, which I read when I was a kid because it was about my ancestor. I know I was such a strange child. Anyway, the story goes, Miles Standish is a commander. He's there to sort of um, provide protection and a military presence with the pilgrims. He falls in love with a wonderful young woman who was listed as a child on the manifest because she was just about to turn 18. And her name was Priscilla Mullins. And he was in love with her probably because she was one of the very few eligible young women on the, on the Mayflower once they landed in Plymouth. So John Alden also secretly loved the beautiful Priscilla. Um, but he was also very um, loyal to Captain Miles Standish because Miles Standish had done so much for the colony. So when Miles Standish said, I really want to declare my love to Priscilla, John, will you go to Priscilla's house and will you please tell her that I'm in love with her? John, even though he's also in love with Priscilla, was an honorable man and he said, fine, I will go and make your declaration to the lovely Priscilla. So he goes to Priscilla's house and he says, Captain Miles Standish would like you to know, you know, that he thinks highly of you, hi you're highly favorable, and he would like to court you. And Priscilla, wow, this is something really unusual for a pilgrim woman. She says, um, why don't you speak up for yourself, John, or something to that extent, which is really bold, telling John, you know what, I actually like you. Why don't you tell me how you feel? The rest is history. The picture there is poor Miles Standish coming in to see what's happened. And there's John and Priscilla together. And they did marry and they had 10 children. So a lot of people are descended from John and Priscilla, that original first love triangle. In fact, if some of you viewers or listeners do some research, I bet you'll find that some of you are because they did have 10, 10 children and almost all of them um, lived to adulthood, which was very unusual. So they definitely have a lot of descendants. That picture there looks like he's very understandish of the love. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yes. And what joke did you make? You made a horrible joke. You said, well, I would have been more of a lazy pilgrim. I wouldn't have been Miles Standish. I'd have been Miles Sittish. Oh, my God. That is a pilgrim dad joke. That's a forefather's joke, a bad forefather's <laughs> okay. joke. Not a dad joke, a forefather joke. There you go. We we need another piece of pie, another bite of pie. We're definitely jumping. That's right. Here, we so. digress. Anyway, it's a great story. And, and I have you know, Mayflower ancestors. Well, a lot of people have Mayflower ancestors and a lot of them take that very seriously and think that it has great meaning um, and almost directs the purpose of their life. So Joseph Smith and Emma Hale Smith, they share seven Mayflower ancestors together. Do you want to read through that? As Landon takes a bite. <laughs> I thought you were covering that. <laughs> ah, it's okay. I'm trying to pass the buck around. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, they they uh, had seven different Mayflower ancestors. John Tilly, who was a separatist, so mm -hmm. pilgrim. A pilgrim. Joan Hurst Tilly, who is John's wife. She's also pilgrim separatist. Elizabeth Tilly, who uh, is the daughter, and she ends up marrying John Howland. Right. Now, John Howland is the servant of John Carver, who is also a pilgrim separatist. So he's an indentured servant. And we'll get back to John Howland. Yeah. There's a story that's associated with him. Also, Edward Fuller uh, and Ann Fuller, also pilgrim separatists. And then Samuel Fuller, 
who's a pilgrim separatist. So um, interestingly enough, all of the relatives they had were all separatists. Um, So it sounds almost like the separatists kind of uh, intermarried uh, and kept the separatist views while the other people, you know, uh, must have kept to themselves somewhat. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. And I think it's important to note, you know, this is the heritage of Joseph and Emma. And I think this definitely factors in into the restoration. I really do. And I think we'll talk about that uh, in, in a little bit here. So um, as Landon mentioned, there is a very well-known story in the more patriotic circles, right? Tim mm-hmm. Ballard has written and talked about this story at length. Um, we're going to read the story. This is actually taken from Tim Ballard's book, and they're discussing this in an article on the Deseret News. So this will discuss how Tim Ballard relates this story. And he does talk about this quite a bit. This is kind of a goosebump story, wouldn't you say, where you just, you know, this is supposed to bring it all home, how important it is, and how God's hand is a part of what happened to John Howland and later results in the restoration. So do you want to read that, Landon? Sure. One undertold story is that of John Howland, who came across the Atlantic Ocean as the servant of John Carver, the Pilgrim's first governor in America. Ballard recounts that at one point during the Mayflower's voyage to America, while passengers were below deck during a storm, Howland climbed to the deck and was somehow thrown off into the thrashing sea waves. The Mayflower wasn't a speedboat. There was no turning that thing around, especially in stormy weather, Ballard wrote in his book. Statistically, Howland was a dead man. As he fell, however, Howland's hand was able to grasp the top cell halyard, the rope sailors used to raise the upper cell, which was dangling off the deck and dragging in the water below. Howland managed to hold on, though he was several fathoms underwater until he was hauled up by the same rope to the brim of the water, and then with a boat hook and other means got him into the ship again, recorded William Bradford, another passenger on the Mayflower. Yeah, so a very dramatic story. And Tim Ballard tells this story, and others have told this story, to illustrate, you know, God's hand in saving Howland, who then, you know, eventually his descendant was Joseph Smith. So right here, the restoration, wouldn't you say, Landon, was in danger. But because God intervened and Howland was able to be rescued, he was able to marry, have 10 children, and one of those descendants was Joseph Smith, who ushered in the restoration. So it's definitely a story that gives you goosebumps, wouldn't you say? Well, it it, it definitely could be one that would give you goosebumps if you look <laughs> at it from that way. So some would say that uh, yeah, some the, the restoration say. was in, uh, that this, you know, was God protecting his restoration mm-hmm. and that uh, without it, the restoration never would have occurred. Exactly. Uh, and, and didn't you kind of find growing up that everything was through the lens of Mormonism, all history, everything mm-hmm. that happened, was supposed to lead to this culminating event, you know, it, with Joseph Smith and the restoration, every single thing that happened. And and when you look at it that way, then yes, this is absolutely a, you know, perseverance of the, of the restoration mm-hmm. uh, by preserving this, uh, by, by preserving this um, man, John Howland. Yep, exactly. So um, we talked before about another um ancestor of Joseph and Emma, and it was the daughter, Elizabeth Tilly, she did end up marrying John Helland. And they had 10 children. In fact, today, uh, nearly 35 million people worldwide are estimated to be descended from someone who sailed on the Mayflower. Think about that for a minute. 35 million people worldwide 
had a Mayflower ancestor. It is estimated that 10 million of those descendants live in the United States, and it's estimated that 2 million of them are descended from John Howland, who we just described his story of falling off the boat. And that's a, a surprising number of these descendants are famous. So we kind of went through a list of different people that, like Joseph Smith, descended from John Howland and his miraculous story. Had he not been saved, these people would not exist and neither would their accomplishments. So I guess for some reason, God wanted to preserve Alec Baldwin. Is that <laughs> <laughs> is that how you see that? I mean, yeah. using the same thought process, you could look at it that way. Maybe uh, we've got Stephen Baldwin, Humphrey Bogart. I uh, here's looking that at one you, there. Kid. That's yeah. right. Here's looking at you. <laughs> With, had, Hall, had Helen not survived, we wouldn't have had that. We'd never had that. We would not have Casablanca. Yeah, and RFM would be very sad because he loves that movie. Um, George Herbert Walker Bush. We wouldn't have him, the two presidents, or his son, George Bush, and Jeb Bush. We wouldn't have that. Uh, Mary Shapin Carpenter, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry Cabot Lodge, Christopher Lloyd. We wouldn't have him in that famous, iconic role in Back to the Future. That would not no, happen. That's worth course, a shot. <laughs> of course, he could go back to the or back to the past. He could change that. Maybe he's the one. That Maybe that's what John happened. Holland. They showed up oh on the Mayflower and <laughs> saved him. He so threw the rope. Could happen. <laughs> he threw the rope down. Maybe that's what happened. This now I'm really getting goosebumps. This is amazing. Um, Henry W. Longfellow, who wrote the narrative uh, poem about my ancestor John Alden, and um, Sarah Palin, right? How could we have lived without her? How could we have lived without <laughs> Sarah Palin, right? Um, FDR, Lillian Russell, and of course, here on the list, Joseph Smith Jr., Dr. Benjamin Spock. No one would have known how to raise their children <laughs> if he had not been preserved on the Mayflower. William H. Macy, Chevy Chase. Okay, you wouldn't have Vacation or my favorite Christmas movie, Christmas Vacation, None of that without this amazing story of preservation on the Mayflower. That's right? why he was saved. It wasn't the restoration. We had to have Christmas vacation. We had to have Christmas vacation. <laughs> what would vacation. the culture be without that? <laughs> That's it. Uh, John Lithgow. And okay, this next one is the reason I actually think that, that that miraculous event happened. And that's Jane Austen, one of my very favorite authors. Her wonderful books would not exist had that not have happened. And then amazingly, you want to read the last descendant of John Howland there, Landon? That's M. Russell Ballard. And of course, because yep. he's also a descendant of Hiram Smith, uh, the Smith family was part of this. So he would naturally yep. fall within there. Yep. And that was one of the things in the book uh, that why uh, M. Russell Ballard uh, was so in love with Tim Ballard was because Tim Ballard brought these stories of his ancestors. So while I think M. Russell Ballard thought, oh, I'm so unique. I'm a, you know, I'm a, a, a product of this wonderful story. Uh, not that special. Two million other people also uh, are are descendants as well. Exactly, but but you can look at it and say it it is pretty amazing. You know the fact that all this happened and the fact that we're all here today. But if you're at Thanksgiving with some annoying relative you don't know, and they say my side of the family we descended from the Mayflower, you can go, yeah, you and thirty five million other people, right? You could just <laughs> slap them right down. So. <laughs> but it's good to understand the history. It's good to understand the perspective because you can pick and choose these events and put meaning on them, you know, to lead people to a conclusion, which really may not be exactly how it happened. Exactly. Um, 
in fact, that's kind of uh, what uh, Tim Ballard seemed to uh, excel in, in uh, yes. his book, The Pilgrim Hypothesis. Uh, he says, the entirety of the book is showing how the gospel of Jesus Christ and the history of this promised land of America fit hand in glove. How history corroborates with the restoration, said Ballard, a Latter-day Saint. In fact, I would, or he used to be a Latter-day Saint. Yes, this is an older article from the Dead article. News from two, four years ago. Yeah, 2020, three years in ago. In fact, I would argue you can't explain one without the other. You can't explain what happened in America and the miracles and the crazy beyond belief coincidences without also simultaneously showing the restoration of the gospel and vice versa. They are one and the same, and that's what this book is really about. Yeah, and that's a fallacy there. That line that says, I would argue you can't explain one without the other. You can't explain what happened in America and the miracles. Yeah, because you're looking at it through that lens. You're starting from a starting point, you know, that God set aside America, as we learned in every church resource, for the restoration. And then you work backwards. I guess it's a Mulesteinism, right? You work backwards, and you find the events that that support your belief that that happened and you put them in that context. And it does seem to fit when you do it that way, if you look at it. But you could read the whole thing with the end showing that Chevy Chase and the Christmas vacation was the one. I mean, you could read the whole thing with that being the end result. It just depends on what you're looking for. Yes. In fact, let's let's do exactly that. James White, uh, Elder James White, who yep. was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist, was another direct descendant of the Mayflower Pilgrim. Yep. So we could make the argument that the uh, Mayflower uh, was all about bringing about the Seventh-day Adventist yep. church. And yep. I think if you dig into it, you're going to find that there are several other uh, churches that started in the United States, uh, specifically these very high demand, uh, burnt over district type churches, where the founding fathers of those churches were also uh, direct relatives of the Mayflower pilgrims. So this argument that uh, the that uh, you, you can't explain uh, American history without the restoration. Yeah. Well, then you can't explain it without the Seventh-day Adventists, without the story of the Jehovah's Witness, mm -hmm. et cetera, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Uh, we, we have to be consistent. You can't just look at your one uh, belief and say, oh, that answers all questions and not look at the, the, the same belief uh, other ways. Yep. Okay, oh, one other point. Uh, is that uh, Rebecca is a descendant of a Mayflower pilgrim. So in that sense, you'd have to say, well, maybe Mormonish was preserved to correct uh, the uh, the relatives uh, <laughs> that came from the Smith family uh, when they want to make uh, claims that are not correct. And no, I never thought about that. You're saying that maybe the entire, you know, the Mayflower, Plymouth, all of it is just so that Mormonish could exist. Well, America doesn't make sense without Mormonish, and Mormonish doesn't make sense without America. <laughs> uh, wow. I'll have a piece of pie to that. To That's have a amazing. Piece of pie. I had I'll never thought that of that as before. well. Hmm. <laughs> you are not eating your pie. You're just eating straight sugar. I am concerned for the rest of your no, day. The pie's half gone, see? Oh, is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> That brings us to this, uh, to, to our last couple slides, because this Puritan versus pilgrimism, why is it important to Mormons? And it's it's interesting when you start seeing what the differences were, were between these two. So first, if you look at the Puritans, as we said, the Puritans founded Massachusetts Bay Colony. They wanted to stay with the Church of England. 
they believed in biblical law. So they were trying to, uh, as we said, they weren't religious tolerant. They wanted to follow the Bible. They were kind of like the Taliban of their day, I guess. They wanted to follow the biblical rules. You had to adhere. You had to follow the rules. You had to conform to their belief system in order to fit in. They also, because they were higher educated, and this is a key, they insisted that their ministers must be educated in Hebrew and Greek. They must be trained. And for that reason, that's why we start seeing all these divinity schools like Harvard and uh, Yale, Dartmouth. <laughs> Dartmouth. We start Had seeing all of these, yeah, these divinity schools. They're there to teach the ministers because right. the ministers had to have a certain education level. Mm -hmm. And why would that be? The ministers were there to uphold the doctrine, to walk the line, to make sure that everyone was in agreement with what the uh, in correct interpretations of the Bible were. They were very much like uh, the church leaders today that, uh, you know, say, this is what we believe and you can't right. depart or we're going to punish you. We're going to keep you in in the doctrinal way. We're going to keep you on the covenant path. Yes. The pilgrims were different. The pilgrims landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts. They were separatists. They wanted to break from the church. These are the post-Mormons of their days. Uh, they uh, had a concept that is called uh, Antonin monianism which means against law they were against the law they believed in personal revelation they didn't believe in organizations telling you how to to believe or think they believed you could receive personal revelation and they had no ordained ministry there was no requirement to be the minister uh they didn't really have that much setup of an organization to believe so as a result of this we've got some very unique things the lack of the ministers in the New World led to the growth of groups that were reliant on this uh, antinomonism, which allowed for the growth of the occult and witchcraft, which is why we end up seeing the Salem witch trials. It's why, where we end up getting uh, some of these beliefs that become core values of the Mormon uh, church as it's, as it's first founded. As you see here, the results of, of this no ministers, free, we always see whenever you get freedom to have revelations that everyone gets a revelation yes. and they're all different and many of them <laughs> right. are crazy. Yep. Um, and as a result, we got the growth of revelatory churches. Yeah. These churches that believe that you commune directly with, with Christ and you don't need a church organization in between. Uh, you also get Hermeticism, which is revelations of pagan god Hermes Trismegistus. I'm not sure I'm saying that Ooh, right. You need but to have some whipped cream after saying that. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I, another thing. <laughs> another, there you go. But from that, from that Hermeticism, we get we, in the New World. We start getting witchcraft, which, as we know from the Salem witch trials, some practiced witchcraft and some did not. But witchcraft was a thing. People were practicing these spells, these mm -hmm. uh, occultish ideas. It's folk magic. We get uh, sorcery, alchemy, which is uh, metals and different mm -hmm. things that you uh, could could uh, do different things with these metals and kind of like uh, oils today, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, the oils will heal everything. Essential metals. Uh, essential metals. <laughs> <laughs> alchemy, essential metals. Uh, magic cures. They believed in in magic. Uh, magic was very much a part of their life. And we're going to be doing a, an episode on magic uh, yeah. coming up in the future. 
really good. Uh, treasure hunting and fortune telling. So this is the group that led right to this folk magic that was so prevalent in the Americas at the time of Joseph Smith and why he's believing in peep stones and hats and divining rods and all of these uh, treasure angels. All of that is a result of the pilgrims coming without ministers and allowing revelatory uh, teachings. So as a result, we get introduction of radical sects. You get the universal friends, which had prophetesses. Mm -hmm. You get the immoralists, which had spiritual wifery. So yep. again, we see more Mormon ideas coming yep. from this group. Yep. You also get deism, which is what many of the founding fathers were deists, which yes. that is they believed in a God who was a creator, but then really had nothing to do with mankind after that point. He's, he's the creator, but whenever we read the Constitution and we see them talk about nature's God, that's a deist philosophy, that God is in nature. Uh, so nature's God is referring to a deist God, not, not the Catholic God, not the Mormon God, right. uh, not Jesus. They're talking about the God of creation. Yeah, and, and we are going to do an episode on the Founding Fathers because there's so much discussion of them now and their Christian values, and it wasn't exactly like that. And I think exactly like it's important to understand the distinction between pilgrims and Puritans, it's very important to understand the Founding Fathers. Yes, and the difference between deists and Christians mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. what they were teaching. And yeah, that's one important one we want to get out because of all of this uh Tim uh, Ballard and the Americas and the white national yeah, the uh, spin. Mormonism spin. And, and all of that, the garden that's going up in Heber, that's going to have all of these uh, statues that show that everything uh, in America was leading to the restoration. Yeah. Need, Book of Mormon, founding fathers, all of it in one place, all the statues, all cats and dogs living together. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's coming to a head, I'm telling you all. And then Freemasonry was also a result. And we all know that Freemasonry had a huge part in the temple uh, uh, ceremony. In fact, you look very nice in your bonnet and uh, almost... Uh, I did not think about that. And I'm also wearing an apron. apron. People can't see this on my dress, but I have it. It's not green, but it's it is green, an apron. But... So... I'm looking at this list and it's like a recipe for Mormonism, especially early Mormonism. It's it's absolutely almost a blow by blow account. That's really so on interesting. On one, one hand, you can argue that the restoration did come mm -hmm. from the pilgrims. Uh, the, yes, that not the Puritans, not, but not the pilgrims. Yes, That's the could, difference. You couldn't have had the restoration without the pilgrims. Right. But you certainly could have had the pilgrims without the restoration. The, 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 they, they would have come and these other groups did break off. As we said, yeah. Seventh day, all of these uh, revelatory churches really were a result of pilgrims. So the religious way of life that we have in America with so many religions and so many different ideas for religion, no state religion, all of that did come from the pilgrims, but it wasn't specific to the Mormon church. It, right. It's what made the America the dynamic religious country that it is today. And also what made it so that we've got some really weird ideas compared to the rest of the world <laughs> where we make all of our policies based on religious beliefs rather yeah. than sound uh, decision making. 
Oh, yeah. And we're certainly seeing that in our little uh, Heber and Cody uh, temple involvement there, where it seems like a lot of the decisions have a hugely religious component and they're not looking at things practically. And I think the point here is also that, as we saw in the slide before, Joseph Smith's ancestors were the pilgrims. All of them were the separatists, not the Puritans. And so they would have had all of these um, things that they were doing. This is kind of the way his family, I think, just the dynamic, don't you think? His ancestors, yeah. I, the things I think you that came down very, his family line. Yeah, the very beginnings of the Mormon church where yes. you had all of the weird revelatory mm -hmm. uh, things. Later on, as you get the Doctrine and Covenants, I think you see more of the Puritan ideas from Dartmouth College and stuff. I think Sidney Rigdon was a Puritan. And Sidney Rigdon I'm going to have to look Puritan, at that. I think you that start might be getting true. a melding mm -hmm. of Puritan and mm -hmm. Pilgrim uh, ideas come together, and that's what ends up being the Mormon Church. So uh, hopefully this has been a fascinating, interesting <laughs> uh, look at why Thanksgiving matters, why Pilgrims and Puritans matter and how it all affected the Restoration Church. I know, and I would make a point, I was going to say before we completely end, if you look at, I think a perfect example is Joseph's mother, Lucy, right? All of these things that we've listed here, she was heavily involved in all of them. Um, although it was folk magic, it was her religion. You know, people need to make that distinction. This was her religion. She could read the Bible and then she could read a poem. It was all part of it. And it's all interwoven in the very early church. Like you said, it's all part of it. Read D. Michael Quinn, right? And we also did an episode on that. So it is, it matters. And it's it's really important to try to, I don't know, be aware, right, of history. It matters because other people are going to give you their version of history. They're going to tell you what it means. And you need to be aware enough um, that you understand what it means. Otherwise, you might, you know, you might be influenced in a way by somebody telling you something that may not be exactly how things appear. Would you say that's that's true? That's what we're trying to kind of say, Landon? Yeah, absolutely. Just do do the research and look mm -hmm. at it, you know. Is it, if, yeah. You know, we don't know everything. We we try to research it and find it and make these ties. But yeah, study it and find uh, find out for yourself uh, from some of these books how, how it went. But yeah, uh, absolutely. It so, was. Goody, Rebecca. That's Goody. Uh, uh, it's the end of our episode and we just episode. we really want to say uh happy thanksgiving to everybody from mormonish and we hope that you have a wonderful time with family and friends and loved ones and just have a wonderful day all together um in the comments please tell us are you descended from a mayflower uh, passenger i bet you are 35 million people worldwide tell us your ancestor story tell us if you learned something new tell us if you started craving whipped cream by the end of the episode <laughs> and pumpkin pie. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to hear what you think. Um, please like and subscribe to Mormonish. And if you'd like to be made aware of when new episodes come out, you can hit that notification bell. And if you would like to donate and financially support the the infrastructure of Mormonism, Mormonism, good heavens, Mormonish. I really have had too much pumpkin pie. <laughs> we always have links in the show notes um, to PayPal and Venmo where you can help support Mormonish. So again, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And see you next time on Mormonish. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.